So they found that uh, most most of the de- vaping devices were Juul, spelled J-U-U-L, not like <laughs> the diamond Juul, but Juul. I don't know if I'm saying that right. So for hip. nicotine, yeah, or Dank Vapes for THC. Yeah, I don't know why anyone would buy something called Dank Vapes. Yeah, that sounds suspect already. <laughs> All right, welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine. It's December 9th, 2019, and this is our fifth episode. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and we have a special guest today with us, Dr. Danny Babel. Hi, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Danny did her medical school at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, and then came to the University of Utah for internal medicine residency. She was a chief medical resident for quality and patient safety at the George E. Wallen VA Medical Center in Salt Lake City before joining the Division of General Medicine at the University of Utah as a hospitalist. Is there anything else the audience should know about you, Danny? Uh, well, you mentioned earlier, I thought this was going to be in my intro that I have a husky. So, <laughs> Yeah, she does have a husky. It's a good-looking animal. Yeah, unfortunately, this is just a podcast and not a a movie. So you can't show us yeah. how beautiful your dog is. Well, yeah. you can follow Danny on Instagram, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I have to approve your request. So, yeah. Uh, Danny's also an avid rock climber, like a seriously good rock climber and a strong proponent of van life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just a typical Utah, I guess you could say. Van <laughs> well, life, rock climbing. I don't climbing, live in a van. It's all the same. <laughs> Not doing it right. Well, she's definitely boosting our street cred today. Um, <laughs> So Austin was not able to join us. So thank you so much for filling in. Of course. Um, Well, just a reminder for our listeners, the goal of this podcast is to help you stay up to date on internal medicine. So every week we'll share our favorite articles from the major medical journals and try to distill the big take-home points in under 20 minutes. Uh, Also, this is for education purposes, and your medical decision-making should not be based solely on something you heard on this podcast. All right. So... Um, we got some great stuff to talk about today. I'd like to start us out by talking about the new guidelines in the Annals of Internal Medicine for the Management of Non-Variceal Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding. Uh, these come from the International Consensus Group, who previously created some guidelines back in 2003 with an update in 2010. And what do they have to say? Their first recommendation is that in patients with acute upper GI bleeding and hemodynamic instability, resuscitation should be initiated. Whoa. Yeah. Groundbreaking. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, pretty uncontroversial, I think. Um, But I do think this is an important point um, that I hear from a lot of GI docs. Like, a lot of trainees get fixated on the patient needs a scope. Um, Like, that's the most important thing. Um, But when your patient is hemorrhaging to death, uh, you probably need to stabilize them before proceeding to endoscopy. Because, like, the worst place to send them when they're hypotensive is the endoscopy lab. Right. I mean, you got to sedate them, and generally those things don't go well. And at least at our hospital, it's, like, unstable in the basement. So it's, like, the worst place yeah. if something bad does happen. You don't even happen. get cell service down there. Right. <laughs> so I think in general, yes, resuscitate your patients. Tank them up with fluid or blood or whatever they need. Um, if they get unstable, get them in the ICU. And then you can get your endoscopy. Um, so, yeah. Not very groundbreaking, but worth noting. Important to remember. Yeah. So uh, their next recommendation is to use a Glasgow-Blatchford score of one or less to identify patients who are at very low risk for re-bleeding or mortality. 
and thus may not require hospitalization or inpatient endoscopy. So I've heard of this score, but I've never actually used it. Have Me you neither. used it? Oh, so. Why does Glasgow have so many scores? <laughs> it's a busy town it's a in great, Scotland. Great city. Um, so this score uses gender, BUN, systolic blood pressure, hemoglobin, heart rate, and the presence of heart failure, syncope, melanin, or liver disease as its variables. Um, there are two other scoring systems out there, the AIMS-65 and the pre-endoscopic Rockall. And mm-hmm. this group looked at all three. And apparently the Glasgow Blashford score had the highest sensitivity, 99%, for detecting patients at high risk for re-bleeding. Uh, the Rockall score also had a good sensitivity, but it may miss up to 7% of high-risk patients, and the AIM-65 score could miss up to 20% of patients at low risk. So honestly, I've never used any of these scores, but if it can help identify a patient who doesn't need to be admitted, that would be cool. I've heard of the AIM-65. I don't know if that one has like been around the longest, uh-huh. but clearly it's not the one we're supposed to be using anymore. So It's funny because there's lots of <clears> scores <throat> that are just like baked into our training, right? Like the Chad's VASC, mm-hmm. et cetera, CURB-65 maybe. But mm-hmm. this one, I don't really see a lot of people use, at least at our institution. But maybe I'll whip that out next time the ER calls me about a low-risk GI mm-hmm. bleed. <laughs> um, their next recommendation is to use a hemoglobin level of 8 grams per deciliter for a transfusion threshold. Um, so they cite a 2017 Lancet meta-analysis of five randomized controlled trials that found a restrictive transfusion threshold was associated with a lower risk of all-cause mortality and further bleeding. So one of the studies in that meta-analysis was the 2013 Barcelona study from the New England Journal that looked at a threshold of 7 grams versus 9 grams. And in that study, there were reductions in both mortality and rebleeding in the restrictive arm. Um, But in order to be conservative, this consensus group settled on 8 grams per deciliter as the transfusion threshold. So I don't know what you think about that or what you do in your practice. Yeah, I mean, we generally target 7 for most people. Though, I guess the severity of illness might influence your decision. If someone's coming in and uh, their vital signs are terrible and their hemoglobin's like 7.3 and dropping, you know? Sure, sure. Rather than like the stable person. Yeah, I I think that's a good point. If they look great... And you still have not no evidence that there actually are. Yeah, they might you know, just be lying. Blood. <laughs> then, then maybe like seven point five is okay, right? Yeah. But if they're obvious, if you're watching them have melanoma or something like that, right? You know, active exsanguination. You don't really need <laughs> thresholds. You're just going to treat the patient, right? If yeah. they're hypotensive, give them give them blood. So anyway, I think they're being conservative with the aid. A lot of people would say if they have like cardiovascular disease, then aid is good. Although I don't, I don't know necessarily how strong that evidence is, but it makes people feel better. What are you going to do next year? I mean, we usually do seven at our hospital, and I think you really are just treating them based on how stable they are. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Their next recommendation is that in patients with acute upper GI bleed who are on anticoagulation, either vitamin K antagonists or DOACs, you should not delay endoscopy. So I have had GI docs tell me they won't scope the patient until their INR is normal, Um, uh, but there's really no randomized controlled trials looking at this question. They, They do have a retrospective cohort study that compared 157 patients on anticoagulation with 157 matched controls. And they did find that in patients on anticoagulation, there was no association with re-bleeding um, thromboembolic events or endoscopy-related adverse events in the patients that got endoscopy. <laughs> so 
there was an association between thromboembolic events and patients who received a reversal agent like vitamin K. Hmm. So that I thought was interesting because yeah. I feel like we're pretty, um, I don't know, casual about giving vitamin K. And maybe mm-hmm. if, if that's not the best thing all the time, if there's like an increased risk of thromboembolism. All right. Uh, next recommendation they make is that patients admitted for an upper GI bleed should undergo endoscopy within 24 hours of presentation. Um, and for low-risk patients, the main driver behind that is that it reduces length of stay and cost, which I think we all agree is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they don't really have any data that it necessarily you know, improves mortality or at least high-quality data. But if you can get them out faster and the GI doctors can be accommodating yeah, let's do it in 24 hours or less. Well, and that goes back to, like, you don't need to scope them. Like, it's not, like, time to scope, like, balloon time, you know? Like, you can right. do it within right. 24 hours, so you have time to resuscitate them, and the GI doctor can see them tomorrow. Right. They don't need to come in at 2 a.m. Yeah. for a non-variceal GI bleed. Usually, there are obviously some, you know, really high-risk bleeds that move a little quicker. Um, so then the next section of the guidelines, they make a bunch of recommendations about different endoscopic therapies like thermocoagulation and sclerosant injections and something called TC325 powder that I'd never heard of before, um, which these are probably not very helpful to the general internist. Um, but then they go on to make a recommendation that patients with bleeding ulcers with high-risk stigmata who have undergone successful endoscopic therapy should get IV proton pump inhibitors for 72 hours, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty standard practice, at least at our hospital. Um, for their evidence, they include an, up, an update to a 2006 Cochrane Review analysis of 38 trials that found moderate quality evidence that PPI therapy reduced mortality and high-quality evidence that it reduced re-bleeding risk compared to placebo hmm. or H2 blockers. So that 72 hours of high-dose PPI is better than placebo <laughs> or H2 blockers, which, I mean, that to me is not very surprising. Yeah, what if, like, you just did 24 hours of IV PPI? Right, and so then they did another Cochrane review back in 2013 of 40 trials, 25 of which compared high-dose PPI for 72 hours versus non-high-dose PPIs. And that includes, like, intermittent IV or even oral PPIs. And they found no difference in risk of mortality or re-bleeding. Hmm. So despite this, they still recommend doing high-dose PPI for 72 hours after a high-risk ulcer. And I guess that kind of seems more like expert opinion than... Yeah, and that's know, based on, like, the forest classification of what it looks like. For how high-risk the yeah. ulcer is, yeah. Which I've never been able... I've tried to memorize <laughs> that and... You can look it up. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they'll just tell or, you. Yeah, I'll just read the report and see what they say. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know, I, I mean, I'm not going to probably argue with the GI doctor if they tell me to put the patient on the drip for yeah. 72 hours, but this did make me wonder why we do it that long. Well, because it keeps people in the hospital. Like, you're right. like, we would discharge you home, but you have to get this IV thing. To like 1 a.m. tonight. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. So, or like if you could just do like the intermittent dosing, like I always hate having patients connected to an IV infusion if they don't have to be, right? Like I love intermittent IVs. So anyway, uh, they recommend that for patients who have ulcers with high risk of re-bleeding, that you should do twice daily oral PPI for 14 days, followed by once daily. And I think, you know, this is a good thing to remember because I often prescribe PPIs for twice a day, but I rarely put a 14-day stop date on that. Like, Hmm. I often do 30 days or whatever they tell me. So 14 days, I mean, that's a pretty short course. And since PPIs are like frequently started and 
infrequently discontinued. Oh, man. Everyone's I think. on one. <laughs> it's good to know 14 days for twice a day. Yeah. And then you can just go to once a day. Uh, last one. Last recommendation, well, at least that I'm going to talk about. They recommend using PPI prophylaxis in patients with previous ulcer bleeding who are on antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation. Um, this also seems pretty uncontroversial, um, although for many patients, antiplatelet therapy and anticoagulation are lifelong therapies. Mm -hmm. So you are, you know, potentially committing them to a life of PPI therapy, which, you know, is not totally benign, um, but probably the risks of being on prolonged PPI have also been overblown. You know, there's a lot of observational studies out there that mm -hmm. link it to things Alzheimer's that... Alzheimer's and whatnot. Basically anything you like. Yeah. You know, C. diff. Autism. No. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any study that shows that. So anyway, uh, yeah. So I think overall these guidelines were pretty... Um, uncontroversial but some things to munch on there and that's and that's including patients with just like a daily low-dose aspirin yeah huh yeah <clears throat> any antiplatelet therapy whether it's dual antiplatelet or single yeah I wonder if we're doing that yeah all right uh, the next article that I'm gonna be talking about is a an article that was published in the Lancet journal just last month it's called the clinical presentation treatment and short-term outcomes of lung injury associated with e-cigarettes or vaping, which as an acronym is EVOLI, a prospective observational cohort study. This came out of actually a group of local pulmonologists here in Salt Lake City, uh, headed by Denitza Blagev, a pulmonologist in the Valley that's actually done a lot of research on air quality in mm -hmm. the Wasatch. This topic's gotten a lot of press across the country. Uh, the outbreak essentially started in March of last year, where we started identifying, identifying these cases. But in Utah in particular, for whatever reason, we've had like a higher rate than the national average for, for I, don't, I don't think we know why. Um, there's been about 2,000 cases across the country since last March, and I think a little over 110 or so here in Utah. Mm, wow. Yeah, and, and it's actually interesting because in October, Utah responded by at least trying to ban flavored nicotine vape products, just, I, I think, to sort of detract the youngsters yeah. that might be interested in, like, the bubblegum flavored <laughs> vape or whatever. Uh, but just, like, a few weeks after that, they struck down the ban saying that we've not linked flavored nicotine to e-volley. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're still trying to figure out a lot of things um, about the disease. But this article... Uh, was a multi-center prospective observational cohort study. Uh, it's the largest single health system cohort of patients with EVALI uh, to date. So it's given us some supplemental information to what we thought we knew about the disease. Uh, the time period was from June 27th to October 4th, 2019. And... Um, Basically, just a quick way to sort of diagnose the disease, it's you have to have used some sort of vape product in the 90 days prior to presentation. You have to have abnormal infiltrates on chest imaging, and they can't be caused by any other disease process, such as an infection. Um, so patients were identified at one of the satellite campuses of Intermountain. They have 
several hospitals across the state and those from uh, not from this region. We get a lot of patients from surrounding states, so Wyoming, Idaho, Nevada, in Utah, because we have some of the major hospitals in the region. So uh, the catchment area was quite large. So individuals were identified in this time period by referring physicians across the Intermountain Health community and referred to this task force of, I believe it was five pulmonary physicians who reviewed the cases. Uh, they went back and basically chart reviewed everything. And for a subset of patients, about 27 patients were further investigated by the Utah Department of Health. So they provided some of the information in the study as well. So the, they identified 68 patients with suspected EVALI, but then when the task force reviewed the patients, there were 60 that met inclusion criteria. So 60 patients with EVALI in this time period uh, across 13 hospitals or outpatient clinics. Interestingly, this 60 uh, is most of the patients that were identified in Utah, which were 71 cases in this time period as of September 30th, 2019. So Intermountain's done a really good job at keeping track of these patients. Yeah, and detecting them at the time of presentation, it sounds like. Yeah, and as the study went on, they found that they were detecting more mild cases that they were probably identifying it earlier in the disease course. Mm -hmm. But a lot of little interesting um, things came out of, out of the study. So uh, non-surprisingly, the demographic that they found sort of matched that of the nationwide mm -hmm. epidemic, mostly young men. Young white men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, patients presented with respiratory, but also constitutional and gastrointestinal symptoms. Yeah, I thought the GI symptoms was interesting. Yeah. You wouldn't think that would be a big part of it. Right, something I guess we have to keep on our differential now for some young guy that comes in with abdominal pain. For a couple of them, that's all they came in with. Yeah. And then their chest, or excuse me, their abdominal CT revealed some bilateral ground glass opacities in the lung basis, so that they did a full chest CT and saw they made the diagnosis. Yeah. Um, most of these patients had vital sign derangements, hypoxemia, tachypnea, tachycardia. Over half were admitted to an ICU, but only 17% of those patients uh, were intubated. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, I, I thought it was interesting that a lot of these patients, most of the patients had really elevated inflammatory markers. Yeah. CRP. Strikingly Yeah, high, right? of CRP of 31, ESR, mean, median ESR of 92, uh, and then not surprisingly, they often got uh, other serologies uh -huh. for inflammatory disease, and they were negative, like ANA, ANCA, oh, sure. et cetera. Um, some of these patients did get bronched or underwent bronchoscopy, kind of depending where they were. And um, when the Utah Department of Health looked at the 27 of the 60 patients, they were able to go into further detail about what specific products they were using. Mm -hmm. So they found that uh, most, most of the de vaping devices were Jewel, spelled J-U-U-L, not like <laughs> the diamond jewel, but Jewel. I don't know if I'm saying that right. So for hip. nicotine, yeah, or Dank Vapes for THC. Yeah, I don't know why anyone would buy something called Dank Vapes. Yeah, that sounds suspect already. <laughs> so it's interesting because the CDC, you know, they've been keeping track of all of this, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And they've identified 152 different 
THC-containing product brands that have caused mm-hmm. e-volley. And their most common reported dank product vapes. was also dank vapes. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're considering buying a dank vape product, don't do it. I don't know what dank vape producers are doing, <laughs> but they're obviously messing it up. Well, apparently a lot of them are counterfeit, too. Yeah. So. Yeah, th- th- that was another thing. Most of the people bought their vape stuff online or on a social media app or friends. So they're not generally getting it through the sanctioned sources. The super regulated stores. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And and notably, THC was common amongst these patients, and some have made a link with THC specifically contained contained products. But I don't. Again, I don't think we know that. There's still a lot we don't know about the disease. Yeah. Again, the CDC like they've been able to look at BAL samples from like 29 patients throughout Mm -hmm. the country, and like 82% of them had THC detected in their sample. Yeah. And they're still trying to figure out what's like the pathognomonic sign. For yeah. how, how do we actually diagnose this? Because this is a, a diagnosis of exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this study, those that were bronched, they found lipid-laden macrophages on oil red O staining yeah. in 89% of patients. However, we don't know if that's just caused from vaping itself. Yeah. So I think they're trying to figure out how to do a study to look at healthy vapors that don't get sure. Volley. Just bronk a bunch of yeah. people. So well, if anyone I, out there. I think that is like a huge point of contention, though. It seems like, you know, some folks think that Evoli is like some kind of exogenous lipoid pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And then other folks think, well, maybe it's more like a chemical pneumonitis right. from inhaling toxins. And so, yeah, you could see that just inhaling oils is going to cause lipid-laden macrophages potentially, right? right? Without necessarily being pathophysiologic. So mm-hmm. I think... There's been a lot of discussion, at least in the New England Journal, back and forth between some pathologists, and it seems like the jury's still out on this. Yeah, and and I think maybe there's thought that there might even be sort of like an overlap syndrome. Mm. You know, a lot of these pulm diseases can be kind of confusing like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Were you going to talk about vitamin E at all? uh, The article didn't really specifically address vitamin E acetate, but that has... sort of suspecting that it might yeah. be playing into the disease, um, some toxicity related to vitamin E acetate, which is a, a thickener of the vaping agent. Hmm. But again, I guess we don't know. Yeah, cause and effect would be hard to determine, but these same BAS, BAL samples that the CDC looked at, 100% of them had that in it, but I guess that, that by itself wouldn't necessarily link it to being the cause, but right. it's definitely present in all of the lungs. So. Mm-hmm could be a potential source. Um, Yeah, just a few more things I'll mention that were interesting that came out of this. A lot of these people, most of them got antibiotics and steroids because you have like a sick person in the ICU with a terrible looking chest CT. That's kind of what you do. Um, But a lot of the clinicians thought that the steroids were responsible for the recovery for a lot of these people. So I guess it's it's something that you might consider empirically doing for these patients. Sure. Um, It looked like the sicker ones... You know, they got a big dose of methylprednisolone IV, you know, average dose was like 125 milligrams. Whereas like the milder cases, some of them even treated as outpatients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just got a short course of prednisone, like almost like you're treating like an asthma or COPD flare. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it did seem like it was helpful. Yeah, yeah. So, again, I think we're still trying to figure out. uh, The authors actually did come up with some sort of algorithm for the management of these patients but obviously that's based on um kind of expert opinion, expert opinion right, at this point right have you treated anyone yet this year 
No, I've not been lucky enough. I think the to, pulmonologists to are being really greedy <laughs> with these patients, hoarding all of them. Yeah. Well, like when they come out of the ICU, they just send them all to the pulmonology service. But one of them mistakenly was sent to my oh. service, so I had the pleasure of taking care of one of these gentlemen. Were they on a stereotype? Uh, stereotype? Yeah, we sent them out. I, I, pulmonology recommended we send them out on like two weeks of steroids, hmm. but it was like he w- he just felt so lousy. Yeah. So sick. And even though he didn't need a ton of oxygen, like he had those constitutional symptoms for days. So anyway. Hmm. Yeah. In the article, they did a two week follow up and most people felt better. Um, Some of them, actually, a lot of them still had residual abnormalities on their chest imaging, Mm -hmm. but most of them had improved. Um, I think the authors are going to they're they're going to follow up at least with as many of the cohort as they can um, to see kind of further out what happens with a lot of these patients. But yeah, it's interesting, especially as we head into flu season, <laughs> where like the combo of vape plus flu yeah, don't doesn't do sound it. good. Don't yeah. Do so it and was, I think another interesting thing was like, for the most part, in, at follow up, most people had stopped vaping, but there were some people who just couldn't stop. Yeah, right? there's a couple that relapsed and, and were they, readmitted. They got it. Yeah, they got it again, right? Yeah. It's like, oh man, that's scary because, you know, the nicotine or whatever is in there, pretty powerful yeah, uh, addiction yeah. there. And so even though they've just got in the hospital, they're still using it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hard, Hard to quit. Yeah. Don't start. Yeah. All right. Anything else? I, I think that's about it. I'm sure we'll learn more as time goes on because it's, you know, sort of a new thing. Sweet. Good stuff. Okay, so uh, one more article that we're going to talk about. It's from JAMA Network Open, and it's titled Association of Beta Blocker Use with Heart Failure Hospitalizations and Cardiovascular Disease Mortality Among Patients with Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fractions. It's a really long title. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first author is Dr. Daniel N. Silverman, and this study is a secondary analysis of the TopCat trial. So our listeners may remember the TopCat trial was looking at using spironolactone in the treatment of HEFPEF from 2006 to 2012. And in that study, HEFPEF was defined as heart failure with an EF over 45%. And they published their results in 2014. And they found that spironolactone did not reduce incidence of their primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. So, so far, really nothing has been shown to help uh, or improve outcomes in HEFPEF. So these researchers noted that many patients with HEFPEF are treated with beta blockers, which have been shown to unequivocally reduce mortality in heart failure, reduced ejection fraction. So they decided to look at the patients in the TopCat trial to see if there was any benefit to being on beta blockers. So they included 1,761 patients from North and South America from the original trial, and they stratified patients based on their EF, whether it was between 45 to 49% and over 50%. And it turned out most patients, 89%, had an EF over 50%. 79% of patients were taking beta blockers. And they found that the use of beta blockers was associated with a higher risk of heart failure hospitalizations in the group of patients with an EF of 50% or more, but not in the patients with an EF between 45 and 49%. There was no change in cardiovascular mortality in either group, and beta blocker use was also associated with elevated BNP and NT pro-BNP levels in the patients with an EF of 50% or greater. So pretty interesting results. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, obviously, this study doesn't establish causation, right? Like, they didn't prove that beta, beta blockers, blockers cause are... hospitalization. Right. <laughs> but I think it's a pretty interesting association, and it would be really cool if they did a prospective randomized trial. So are you going to take your patients off uh, beta blockers, Danny, if they have HEFPEF? Well, did the article mention the indication for the beta blocker that, you know, like, why were people on beta blockers? Yeah, so like 40% of patients in the beta blocker arm had atrial fibrillation. So mm -hmm. a lot of them were probably on it for that. 22% had a history of MI. So some of them were on it for coronary artery disease. And they thought that probably the rest of them were on it for maybe hypertension. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think you bring up a good point, right? There's a lot of comorbidities associated with HEFPEF where someone might be on a beta blocker. Making them more prone to be rehospitalized. Oh, maybe. I think for me, looking at this, um, I'd probably be more cautious about starting beta blockers in patients with HEFPEF unless I have like a really strong indication like atrial fibrillation with RBR. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise, like if it's just hypertension you're managing, like there's lots of better medications for controlling that. Right. And if they haven't had like a recent MI, like maybe they don't need to be on a beta blocker. Yeah, I feel like we are examining people being on specifically metoprolol a lot in the hospital and like trying to figure out why why yeah. would they start why are they and like some people are on it for blood pressure and you're like why yeah. Yeah. yeah so anyway i think this will be like end up being interesting in the future if they were to do more studies looking at this question um yeah so i think that's all we have for today thanks for tuning in uh, hopefully you learned something new i know i did uh and thanks to my excellent co-host danny babel for helping out Thanks, Stephen, for inviting me. <laughs> Hopefully you'll come on again sometime. Sure. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Twitter at Last Week in Med. Oh, sorry, it's at Last Week in Med. If you want to give us feedback, please send us a message. Um, someone did suggest putting links to the articles in the show notes, so we are going to do that this week. And uh, please let us know how else we can improve the podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please go rate it and tell your friends. All right, bye-bye now. Thank you.